0: everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. (laughs) Okay. Good job loving each other. Let's find our way back to our seats this morning. Well, welcome to Seacoast. My name is Dominic, one of the pastors here, and we're continuing in our series on an ecclesia called to be different talking about what the church is about, why it was formed, and what's our purpose and function in the world. And uh, I want to start with the story. Uh, A man named Howard Blassingame met me when I was in uh, my early days of a a pastor. I was an associate pastor. It was my first role in a church ever. And I was maybe 20 or 21 when I met him, just a few years into ministry. And Howard and I didn't really have anything in common. He was a grandfather, he was in his late 60s, and 60-year-olds and 20-year-olds don't naturally look to each other and say, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, Maybe that's just me, but they don't naturally gravitate towards each other. And and yet I gave a sermon one day about how the the church needed each other and we needed mentorship and we needed people in our lives to, to spur each other on to love and good deeds. And Howard was a man that came up and he said, I don't know how to do that. And I said, Howard, that's impossible. You've you've been loving Jesus for decades. How long have you been married to Glee? Well, 40 years. Well, I've been married zero because I was single at the time. I think you have something to give to the church. And with that, Howard and I entered into a friendship for years. And he loved me, and he encouraged me. He'd pray for me. Sometimes he'd correct me. But he had this beautiful gift and it was called Retirement Fund. I was a young pastor making $3,000 a year, not a month, a year. And he would take me to the barbecue pit every week. And the the food that he would buy me was like a quarter of my paycheck. And he'd just go, whatever you want, Dom. And I was like, seriously? (laughs) Can, Can I take leftovers home? Like, this is awesome. And he'd sit with me and the 60-something and this 20-something-year-old sitting together and talking about life and talking about how the goodness of Jesus and, and, and encouraging each other in the gospel, encouraging each other in a time of a church. I was in a church that was fighting. They were infighting. We had counselors coming in and helping the congregation think through restoration and unity and forgiveness and peace. And he'd sit with me and he'd pray with me and he'd feed me. And he invited me over to his home, and he'd talk about Glee, and he'd talk about how he would fill up her tank. Glee didn't know how to put gas in her own car because there was always gas in her car. Howard would, at night, take her car to the gas station, fill it up so she never had to worry about it. And he'd play with his grandkids who were teenagers, just a few years younger than I were, and and I'd watch him interact as a father and a grandfather. And he opened his home, and he was hospitable, and he would constantly have people over, and he wasn't the best theologian. He'd always just go, church, glory to God. And he just, it was like he was looking at Jesus, and he'd just go, glory. He was from the south, and I can't do the accent, so just insert that. And he loved me, and he served me, and he prayed for me, and then I got married, and then he did it to Tara and myself, and Sometimes he'd come up with on a Sunday and he'd have a card in his hand and I'd pick up the card and I'd go, Howard, and it was fat. I'm like, that's not a card, dude. Like, I can't take that. He said, he's, best advice ever, he said, Dominic, do you think we didn't pray about this? Do you think Glee and I didn't think about that we wanted to give you and Tara something? You're robbing me from the blessing of God because I'm trying to be faithful to him and serve you and love you. And you're depriving me from the blessing that I'm feeling like in being obedient to the Lord. So take this card. And I'd open it and it'd be a stack of hundreds. It'd be like a third of my yearly salary in a card. There'd be groceries on my doorstep because he said, Hey, we were at the grocery store and we just thought, Dom probably eats bread too. So let's buy two loaves. He probably likes oranges. Oh, he doesn't. Let's get bananas. And he'd just put them on our step. Tara and I, in our first year of marriage, we celebrated our one-year anniversary in Romania. And we were working with a mission organization. We were working with um, handicapped kids in foster homes and doing all kinds of projects. And and Howard gave us money so that we could go and be a part of that, to bless others. He couldn't get on a plane anymore, but he could bless us to go and do that. And I had a car, and it was a a, a hoopty. You ever drive a hoopty, anybody? You know, I had a gallon of water. Yeah, I see that hand. I'd have a gallon of water, and I would pour it into my car so it didn't overheat, and I could get to my destination, and then it would all leak out again, and I'd need to do it again. And then eventually, the driver's seat didn't open, so I'd have to open the passenger door and climb over. It was the best car ever. Well, Howard was handy, and so when I came back from Romania, lo and behold, my driver's side door opened. And I was like, Howard, how in the world did you do that? He's like, And I fixed your leak, too. Howard embodied the love of God and the church to me as a young man. While I was up here faithfully trying to teach scripture and understand Jesus, very new in my walk and very new as a pastor, he was embodying what the church was supposed to be. He was scripture in 3D coming to life. When I got to speak at his memorial a few years ago, I walked in the room of the church that I used to be the pastor at and it looked dimmer and I remember going like the glory has left just a little bit there's no one to say glory anymore I remember looking at his widow and encouraging her and thanking her and his grandkids and his kids and the whole community that he had impacted and influenced and I remember that marked moment of just going man I hope I get to be Howard in somebody's story someday. No amount of theological knowledge that without the practice does any good. No amount of being captivated by the glory and love and splendor of God that doesn't get expressed to the one another's in the room does no good. And so today, as we talk about the purpose of the church, the ecclesia, the Kaleo, the called-out ones of God, we're going to look at the one another statements in Scripture. If you have a Bible, in paper, or digital, I encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. There's a hundred one another statements in Scripture, and 47 of them are instructions for the church on how they should live and function with each other. There are things like this. Accept one another. Pray for one another, which which what we just did. Teach and admonish one another in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, which we also just did. It's not a warm-up act. It's not entertainment. It's what we get to do physically, teaching each other the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, God faithful in storms of life, God faithful in the highs and lows of everything. To be hospitable with one another, to encourage one another, and, yes, to greet each other with a kiss. Four times in Scripture we're called to kiss one another did anybody kiss each other on the lips this morning it's a fun study for another time but it's really sweet why that happened in the church and it's a sense of just their family and that's what you would do when you greet family there's three main themes that come out of these 47 statements or 100 total statements three things that Jesus and Paul the Apostle and other writers would hit one the unity of the church 30% of the statements Two. The love for one another, 30% of the statements. And three, humility, 15% of the statements. Unity, love, humility, those are the markers of the church. Those are the call, the non-negotiables in Scripture that Jesus says, as you've been invited into this new covenant relationship, this new identity has been given into you, and as kids of me, unity is the marker of how you'll operate with one another. Love will be how you're known around the community around you. And humility is how you'll enter into your relationships with one another. And so we're gonna look at that. Paul is so good that in Ephesians 4, he hits all three of those themes in one verse. So I'm gonna read this to you. We're gonna talk about it a little bit. We'll see what the Spirit does. Amen. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 4. Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received or been called to. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We pray with me this morning? Lord, thanks for the chance to gather together as a family of God, with diverse experiences and thoughts, and yet somehow come and live in unity and love and humility with one another. And I pray that through your word and through your spirit, that you would show us and point us and direct our hearts to live in a way of the calling that you have placed on each of our lives for those in Christ this morning. I pray that a love affair with you and with each other would begin and continue, that we would have new eyes to see our brother and sister across the room, across the aisle, that we would have a commonality of hope centered in you, that we would be reminded of who and whose we are this morning. And that we'd just walk away enamored with you and maybe like Howard, just saying glory. God, you're so full of glory this morning. So have your way, do what only you can in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Therefore, anytime you see therefore in scripture, you say, what's it there for? Thank you. My Bible teacher would appreciate that. Therefore, if you see, he's, therefore is a pivotal word. It's saying, in light of the last three chapters, therefore live worthy of the calling. Well, what is he talking about? Paul is writing to the church of Ephesus, and Ephesus is this influential town. It's about the fourth largest town in, in, in ancient times. It's in Asia Minor. There's about 250,000 people there, and it's a hub of commerce and political. Politics and religion, you have Greek and Roman thought coming through there, and you have uh, one of the seven wonders of the world in the ancient world the the temple of Diana, where you'd have prostitute worship and so that they were really busy and, and popping there they were they were really like everyone loved that and so kind of what happened in Ephesus was stays in Ephesus was so sort of the Vegas of the time and here is Paul. Uh, writing to this influential church i love this church because it's one of the churches that we know most about in scripture we see it in acts where it's beginning we see paul writing to this letter of ephesians first and second timothy to the young pastor who's pastoring the church of ephesus and eventually john and then in revelation we see how the church ended they they loved god but they forgot their first love they loved theology but they forgot their first love and so he's writing to this influential town, to this influential people, to a church that it becomes influential in the spread of the gospel. And he starts with the song in chapter 1. This beautiful poem that points people to, say, church in Ephesus. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm because you've been invited in to a relationship with God. You are no longer cast off, but you are near. You are sons and daughters of the Most High, and you are sealed with the Spirit who is the mark of your inheritance that awaits that this world is not it. There's a kingdom to come. So set your gaze and sights on that. It's a beautiful song. And he prays for the church and says, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened that you might know him more. The goal that you, as you know him and gaze on him, that you would in turn respond those around you in chapter two he says you were dead in sin but you've been made alive in christ it's not anything that you've done it's no human effort or hand that could contribute to it it's by grace that you've been saved so that no one can boast and he's gifted you and before the foundations of the earth he thought of you and gifted you so that the church could live and function as it's intended. And in chapter 2, he says this beautiful thing. If you're writing notes, verse 14 in chapter 2, he says, For he himself is our peace who has made two one and has destroyed the barrier, dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. Verse 16, and in his body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you, you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Here's this new identity, here's this new reality, and here's this new humanity. Christ came and fulfilled what only he can fulfill. He was the better Adam. He was perfect. He lived and fulfilled the law without sin and then, therefore, demolished the barrier between father and his kids. And he also demolished the barrier of between Jew and Gentile in this context that both have now become one. Through the finished work of Christ, he did what no man can do is that he created a new family, a new humanity, marked by their newness in Christ. Marked now by a common goal. Chapter three, he says, you're now one. And the goal is oneness. And in your oneness, be reminded of this good news that comes through Christ. You have access to the Father. You can come with boldness and confidence to him as one new humanity. So I pray, church, that you would know the height and depth and width of the love that God has for you. Therefore. That's a lot just to get to one word, isn't it? Therefore. Therefore. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That word calling literally just means the invitation of God to be a part of the kingdom of God and all its privileges. Live a life worthy of that. If we just stopped right there and just read that verse out of context, we would think we need to do a lot. There's a lot that needs to get done. March Christian soldier onward. But in context of the three, you said that Jesus did it all. You were dead in sin. I was dead in sin. I brought nothing to the table. What do dead men bring? You can answer, Bruce, nothing, right? (laughs) Shaking your head with a smile. They bring nothing. You brought nothing to the table. Christ, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. Christ made you one. What no man could do, he made accomplished. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of this. Essentially, walk in this new reality, church. It is a high and worthy calling. It is not a, a small thing what God did. He humbled himself so that you and I could have relationship. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, so that we could have life and freedom and hope and healing and rescue and peace. Therefore, Walk in this way. Be enamored with the goodness of God. Be enamored with those around you that, though maybe we have nothing in common, what we do have in common now is unity in Christ, united by the finished work of Jesus, marked by being his kids, marked by the peace that he's now bestowed to us. Therefore, live in such a way. Verse 2, he throws out three powerful words that we interpret as weak, Often in our culture, but they are powerful. Be completely humble, be gentle, and be patient. Humility, we talked about as we were just in our Fruit of the Spirit series, so we won't dive into a ton of them. I encourage you to go back to those resources to see the fruit of the Spirit that God has given us because of the Spirit living inside of us as believers. But, Humility is simply this, to think of others as better than yourself. Just go read Philippians chapter two. You see Jesus's example. He humbled himself to death on a cross. In that way, be humble with one another. Gentle, I talked about that two weeks ago. Gentleness is that divinely balanced person that knows how to live in not always getting angry, but also never getting angry. So at the appropriate time, the appropriate length. Be gentle with one another. It's powerful. It's power reserved. And be patient with one another. Patience is the idea of somebody that is rightfully and willfully able to seek vengeance. I'm going to avenge myself because you have wronged me. And yet, I refrain. Patience. It's not like hurry up and wait. No, no, you wrong me, and I can go after you with retribution, and I choose not to. Patience. Church, the mark of you living the life of the worthy, calling the newness and the new identity and the new family that you've been enfolded to is by being humble with one another. Think of each other as better than yourselves. Being gentle with one another. The way you one another each other is divinely balanced in thinking, do I respond in anger, do I don't respond at all, or is there something in the middle? And being patient, though you have wronged me in such a way, I choose to not seek vengeance. If we stopped right there and said, Church, if we started functioning like that, what do you think would happen? Do you think the world around us wants any of that? Do you think the world would crave that if they saw a people of God, if they saw a people of a group that gathered that? They were humble with each other and they loved each other and they were gentle with one another. Would our world transform? Would our workplaces transform? Would our communities transform? Would our households transform? The answer is yes. Live in that way. Well, we look at that and we read that and I say, I tap out. I can't do any of those things. Anybody else? Raise your hand and just go, I suck at all those. Yeah? You can respond. It's good. I see head nods. Good. Thank you, Haley. Back there. Glory. so the next part is so important he says bear bear with one another in love well that sounds like more being piled on it but it's essentially this that love is agape love it's the love that God demonstrated in Greek you have three levels of love you have the eros, the phileo eros is I'm so in love with you it's like high school love phileo is like we're friends it's cool And agape is, I'll lay my life down for you. Self-sacrificially. Church, can we look at each other? Could you look in honesty today and around the room and say, I would lay my life down for you this morning? There's a train coming. I will gladly jump in front of that for you. Because you're my family. And if not, that's the high calling that we've been called to. That we would love one another in that way that we would lay our lives down for one another as one has laid down his life for us. As his kids, we so respond in a similar fashion. Paul gives the antidote in verse three, because I feel overwhelmed. I want to take a nap now. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Everyone say the spirit. Through the bond of Peace. Make every effort. This word is uh, a a a military word. It's guard, be on watch, keenly observe, actively focusing and functioning, setting our eyes on it, looking around the room and going, "Uh uh-oh, there's something out of balance here. We're maintaining, we're seeking every effort that we have in us while we're walking in humility, gentleness, and love to preserve unity. The beauty of unity is, again, it's an impossible task without unity of the Spirit. It's your new function because you and I have the Spirit for those in Christ this morning. And through the Spirit's work who activated unity, we maintain it. Praise God that unity is not contingent on us activating it. It's what's already in motion and he's saying, the garden's been planted, you maintain it. As the fruit of the spirit grows and manifests in you, as you learn to decision by decision, moment by moment, remind yourself of the goodness of the gospel to walk in the spirit. Now the garden grows and blossoms for all to partake and receive and be blessed by. I used to think unity was like a nice thing But over the years now, I would say to you, church, this unity is an essential. As one professor would say, he would say, Dominic, what theological stances would you take a bullet for? Well, the list used to look something like this. Well, who Jesus is, the inerrancy of scripture. Those are two pretty good ones. Take a bullet for those. Now I'd say unity is on that list. He's not just saying, if you can, if you get around to it, be unified. He's saying it's actually the marker. It what's it it lends credibility to the church in proclaiming the gospel. Perhaps you've met people who say, Well, I love Jesus. When I read about Jesus, he's awesome. In fact, other major religions say Jesus was a good teacher, he was a good man. But his church, oh man, we can't stand him. They're hypocritical, they're backbiting. They're fake. You fill in the list. Maybe you've heard it before, too. Maybe at some point you thought it before God captivated your heart and you became part of the family. Maybe you still think it within the family. Well, there's this section. This is the cool kids' table. But that side, no way. And what Paul is saying is, no, it's actually essential to our faith. It's actually essential to being part of the body and being a kid of the king. Maintain unity at all costs. Through the bond of the spirit of peace. Again, peace is, is this. Is that Jesus is our peace. He is the person of peace. And as his kids, as new creation in the new family, it's a natural function. It's like, you got my DNA. Peace is part of who you are. Peacemakers is what you do. And the spirit that's been sealed in you, that's part of who you are. So through the bond of peace, the very ligaments that hold bones together in the body, be people of peace. Be unified as Christ tore down barriers so that you could be one. Oneness is the marker of the church. Make sense? I'm convicted that I don't always seek unity. Studying this week, I'm convicted that I could think and recall all the conversations that actually disrupted unity in my week. Instead of where I use gentleness and humility and love and peace, I chose discord. And I chose my will over somebody else's will, and my way of thinking over somebody else's thinking. In a world that's so tribal, I lived in my tribe instead of living into the oneness that Christ created. The marker, the one defining marker of the church, our unity in him. Our love for him. So I'm convicted, and I hope this morning you are as well. I hope that you can think of situations where you didn't seek unity. But the Spirit of God would convict you in that. Because that is how we live as a family. That is the point of the family of God. We live unified in him. I love that in Ephesians 6, when Paul closes his letter, he talks about the enemy. He talks for three chapters about how to live into this new identity. Live as children of love and children of light in the way we talk and think and respond to one another. And and here's an example in marriage and with kids. and, And then he says there's an enemy. In church, I want you to look to the person to the left and right of you and say there's one enemy and you're not him. Ready, go. There's one enemy, and you're not him. It's a good tool for marriage. Some marriages are like, I'm not saying that to you this morning. It was a rough night. I get it. There's not one enemy, and you're not him. God convicted with me that, with that statement about five years ago, because I was in my flesh. I was not preserving unity. I was not being gentle, humble, or patient in that way. And the Lord just said, who's the enemy? Who are you fighting with? Not, not your brother and sister in Christ, are you? There's, there's one enemy. And the enemy would love us to think that the person over here is my enemy and the person over here, the way you voted, the way you think about major issues and topics in our world, some of the theological issues that are non-essentials but important conversations in the church. They become our enemy. Here's a thought. I didn't even know if I was going to say it, but I'm going to say it. Are denominations biblical? I don't think so. They're they're important when there's theological divide, and there's certainly a time to divide, and I'm not saying that. But I wonder if instead of preserving unity at all costs, we said, we'll just go set up shop down the street with people in our tribe. Just wonder if when we get to heaven, it's gonna be a little more colorful than we thought. The music's gonna sound a little different. The preaching will have ceased because the one that we've been talking about is there. And he'll say, your brother over here actually got part of it right. And you missed out on the sweet part of who I am. And your sister over here, she was correct. And we just see the diversity and the unity of the church. I wonder. It's another sermon. If Ryan lets me teach again. Um, Tribal versus oneness. There's one enemy, and you are not him this morning. But the enemy is real, and his goal is to divide us instead of living in our oneness. He goes on to say, we'll run out of time here this morning, but he goes on to say, if you read the rest of the chapter, that you've been gifted. He calls it in verse 7, you've been gifted with grace. And that is to say that each of you are important members of the family, that he's gifted each of us with unique gifts. So while there's unity, he says there's not uniformity, there's actually diversity within the church. And that we need each other and are dependent on one another. Some are apostles and teachers and, and, and some, 1 Corinthians has a list and there's some that have the gift of hospitality and administration and there's all these different gifts that have been implanted in each of you for the benefit of the church, for the preservation of unity, for the building up and the maturation of the believers, for the help and the support and the one anothering that can happen to each other. To watch out so that our doctrine doesn't go from left to right. So that we can stand firm as a church. And so that the world can take notice of the called out people of God living as one. I'll close with the story. I, uh, I was a teacher. The state of California gave me a teacher at age 18, if you can believe it. And I, went, I graduated high school, I went back into public schools, and I taught for three years. And I retired at the age of 21. And uh, that was a good thing. Um, getting asked to prom by students was hard uh, when you're the same age. Um, but I quit, and I saved money, and I went and backpacked through Europe, and I saw 39 countries that summer. And I was in Mykonos, I was on the island of Mykonos in Greece. It was beautiful looking at the Mediterranean Sea and, or ocean and just seeing, like, I can't believe this view. And the sun was kind of starting to come down. And there was a DJ on the beach, as there should be, you know. <laughs> and he was just bumping. It was boots boots, And something took over me. I was 21. I'd saved all this money. I'd quit my job. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I knew I was going to go finish a degree in Bible. And, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Something in that moment, all I saw was this beautiful ocean, so warm, this beautiful scenery. And I got up on a table. And for like three hours straight, I was just, I have a picture. I didn't bring it, but there's a, somebody took a picture of me. And I'm just like in glasses and a board shorts. And I'm just like, heck, yeah. And people kept coming up to me and they were saying, hey, man what are you on? and I was like what? nothing no, like, and, and just one by one people kept coming up no seriously what are you on? what are you drinking? what's in that water bottle? it's just water like, but did you get mushrooms when you're in Amsterdam? like what was it? what are you on? I said nothing just the the surrounding just has overtaken me like this TJ's really good and I've never done it since. <laughs> but something captivated my heart. So much to the point that people said, What's going on? What are you on? Church, can I tell you that that's a picture of the church this morning? The world around us sits through the church like this. Heck yeah. Unity, love, humility, gentleness is pumping. The way they preserve unity with one another, wow, we don't know anything like that because our world is so divided. I've never seen people not respond in retribution when wrong has been done. Instead, they're being patient with one another. What are you on? First Peter would say, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have when asked. If no one asks you, you're not dancing on the table and no one cares what you're on. They don't like it. I don't want what you're on. But compelled by the love and grace and if ours would hear, he would say, glory. Compelled by that. Church, that is our aim. May we be one as he is one, as, John, as Jesus prayed in John 17, and that by our oneness that the world would take notice and come to a saving knowledge of him and respond. Amen i gonna invite the worship team back up here in a minute and we're gonna transition to a moment of communion, but just three thoughts as we close. There's so much more to say. This could be a whole series just on that passage. But there's this. Church, none of this is negotiable. None of Paul's writing is negotiable. For those in Christ this morning, you don't get to pick and choose and neither do I. Unity is our aim. Walking in our newness is our aim. Being humble, gentle, and love, bearing all things with one another, is the aim, non-negotiable. It's essential to our faith. Two, it's our ability to support one another. Because of that, it requires relationship. None of this can happen in silo and by yourself doesn't matter how great of a quiet time you had or in the ocean you had a surf session that was your time with God and that was your church that is not how any you can't want another a dolphin (laughs) that'll preach right come on (laughs) it requires relationship it's non-negotiable it's all relationship and finally none of it's possible without the spirit it's totally unnatural which is why the world will take notice when we live in our newness, allow the Spirit to lead us and walk in that newness. Amen? We're going to invite Matt up. We're going to go into a time of communion where we get to celebrate that together.:
1: um, Hi everybody. My name is Matt Jarvin, and I'm a member here, and I serve on the elder board. I'm going to just frame communion a little bit for us as we take it together. Um, uh, Dom has done such a great job of laying a foundation of unity, which is what Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, is preaching. He's experienced the unity of God, he's experienced the unity of of the church, and he's inviting us into that. Now, in First Corinthians, this is in chapter 11, verse 17, he's speaking to a church which is doing the opposite. He, he says to them, I do not condemn or commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you believe it indeed there have to be factions among you for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine when you come together and this is again what he's speaking against contrasted to the vision of unity he says when you come together it is not really to eat the lord's supper for when the time comes to eat, each of you proceeds to eat your own supper and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. In this way, he says, you show contempt for the church of God and you humiliate those who have nothing. This is the vision of disunity. This is what happens when the church has disunity. And this is what Paul as you can see, is passionately speaking against. So let's do what Paul is inviting us into. Let's be the united church of God. If, if there is disunity, if there is disconnection, if there is quarreling between you and another person here, this is the moment to see that you are united together if there is conflict between you and another member of your family, this is the moment to see that God has overcome that with His offering of Himself for us. And if you feel like you are on the outside of God's family because of something you've done, because of something you've been through, Paul is saying, now and forever, You are in the inside. You are part of God's family. And this meal is a representation of that. So, later in that chapter, Paul gives two instructions as a contrast to this problem in the church. First, in verse 28, he says, examine yourselves And only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so in a moment, I'm gonna invite you to examine yourselves. Are you in disunity? Have you been fighting? Have you been finding ways to be apart from your fellow believers? Or are you focusing on the essential, essential gospel message of unity in the family? So first we're gonna examine ourselves. And then in verse 33, he says, My brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. What they were doing was eating at different times and in different places, and people were coming and eating before, and then other people were eating later. It was a reflection of their disunity and their separation and their conflicts and their avoidance of each other. And so Paul's saying, when you eat together, wait for each other. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take a moment here, we're gonna examine ourselves, we're gonna focus on the unity of God, and then we're gonna wait for each other to take the elements together. And if you are uh, new here, if you're just checking this out, no pressure, feel free to stay in your seat, but we're gonna invite all others to come forward after a moment of examination to grab the elements, wait to take them, wait for your family, go back to your seat, And after a moment, I'll come up, and then I'll guide us through taking in the elements as a united family of God together. Okay. So examine yourselves now, and in a moment, just when you're ready, you can start coming up either side. The elements are here on the right and here on the left. Gather them, and then go back to your seat. Verse 23, Paul shares, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's take now, together, as the united family of Christ. In the same way, he took the cup also, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me so let's take this as the ones who have been brought in no longer outsiders but insiders into the family of god let's take it together Gifts. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for knitting us together despite so many pulls that draw us apart. God, will you just protect us from disunity? You protect us from ideas and beliefs, temptations that would pull us apart as your united family. And thank you, Lord, for inviting us in.